Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Luke chapter 19 as we continue our work Through the Gospel of Luke, the humble king arrives. As you're turning there, I want to remind us that last week we opened up our message with the concept of the phrase, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Remember that? You're just waiting for the shoe to drop. You're waiting for something to happen. Imagine a scenario where you have become the model employee at your place of employment. You are punctual, Consider to your fellow employees, you're desiring to make them better. It's not just about you. You're productive. You follow all the policies and procedures to a T. You have mutual admiration for your coworkers and customers alike. However, your employer, for some reason, is not happy with you. All of your good work serves to display his laziness, his lack of true leadership, and his selfishness. And though they try to find ways to find fault with your work, they continually come up empty, but yet you continue to do what is right. Eventually, they turn to your co-workers and customers against you by spreading lies and spouting threats. They do this openly with your knowledge. It is not a secret. It has become apparent that they want to get rid of you at any cost. They go so far as to ask your co-workers and customers to inform them of any misstep in order to set up the, 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 the procedures to fire you. And knowing this, you still show up for work, given an honest day's work, determined to do what is right. What would you do? Would, is it, would this describe your attitude towards your employer, to a place that constantly seeks to undermine you and to fire you? Would you enjoy going to that place or would you feel like just condemning and say, you know what, that's it, just I'm done with this job? Would you continue to work for the company? Would you still seek to do right by them or would you start to look for ways to, to, to damage what they're doing? Would you continue to show up for work knowing that they're looking for an excuse? Would it change how you interact with your customers and with your employees, coworkers? I know this is a strange scenario, but it's somewhat like what's going on here in our passage in Luke as Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. Now, we have learned throughout our studies in Luke and as well as just in all of our teachings, whether it's our small groups, our adult core class, and all the things that we've done here, is that you and I live in a broken world. We all do. We see it all around us. There's no escaping the fact that injustice, what what people call racism, prejudices, biases, class warfare is all happening and are rampant around us. There's no shortage of political, cultural, and religious uh, messiahs who come proclaiming that they alone have the answers and demand that we bow down and follow them. They want our votes. And in their wake, they litter the landscape with broken promises, bitterness, resentment, frustration, and anger. Eventually, this leads the populace to feelings of hopelessness, looking for another savior to lead them to their self-designed promised lands. Through the writings of the prophets, the laws, and the psalms, 
Yahweh has given Israel four promises in the Old Testament. The first one, as you see here on the monitor, is the promise of a Savior to rescue us from our sin. We need to understand that. There's also a promise of a prophet who will come to proclaim God's word. That third promise we find in the Old Testament is that of a priest we sung just a moment ago to reconcile us back to God. Now, the purposes of these three promises is to make right what went wrong, to make right what we know is wrong with the world. You see, at the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he created humanity to rule over his kingdom. They were to mediate his rule over all the earth. However, scripture tells us in Genesis 1, when God said, let us make man in his own image after our likeness, let him have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds, and the heavens, over all things on the earth. So God created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. But as we know from our study in Genesis 3, man rejected God's rule, rebelled against him by putting all of humanity under the wrath of God and the curse of sin and death. Deserving of his righteous judgment, we fell under those curses. Like God's people centuries ago, we also need a king to mediate God's kingdom to right that which was so, went so horribly wrong. We need a king who will judge, rule, and defend God's chosen people in righteousness and proclaim peace to all the nations. And not just proclaim it, but also to bring it. Which leads us then, as you'll see here in the monitor, the fourth promise in Scripture. And that is the promise of a king who will rule in justice, peace, and righteousness. Why? Because these four promises makes right that went, 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 went wrong. Today we're going to focus on that fourth one, the promise of a king. Jesus Christ who came to put all his enemies under his feet and to shepherd God's people. And you and I, we join with all the angels and all the saints and even the rocks and, the, and all of creation as we sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The journey that, started, that Jesus started in Luke 9.51 finally concludes as he enters through the gates of Jerusalem in our passage this morning. Not all are celebrating or rejoicing or receiving and worshiping him. The religious leaders are complaining, they're criticizing, they're condemning and calling for Jesus to censure his disciples. As we come to the end of chapter 19 of Luke, we see Jesus depicted as the king in 28 through 41. In 41 through 44, we see him as the prophet. And then in 45 through 48, which we will look at next week, we see him as the priest who comes to fulfill those promises of God. Now, as you may remember, two weeks ago, we discussed that a large group of people were traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they've been following Jesus from Galilee and from that whole area as he's walking. And they're walking to the Passover. It is estimated that approximately two million people would be in Jerusalem for this once a year event, which we know as the Passover, which they would call the Passover. This begins in the little village of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, which we looked at last week as an interlude between our passages from the previous week. 
Now, Luke chapter 19, we're going to read this together. I'll read it out loud silently if you would meet with me. Again, bring your Bibles. It's on the monitor, but again, encourage you to bring your Bibles. Verse 28, join with me silently. When Luke writes, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and, or Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever ridden yet set. Ever, no one has ever yet set. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. That's probably something that's repeated there twice. That may be needful to, to understand. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawn near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them in verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, Father, let us be like the stones. Let us cry out. Let us not be silent. But cry out that Jesus is king. Jesus is our Lord Savior. He is the prophet and priest, the one who fulfills the promises of God. So from our minds and hearts as we read a familiar passage, a story, Lord, that we understand it, maybe understand it for the first time. Lord, that your spirit would have free reign to work in our hearts. Lord, that there'd be not many distractions, but that we'd be able to concentrate and see what it is that you would want us to know, what you would want us to understand. And Father, how we should respond to the Holy Spirit that we may be men and, wisdom, men and women of wisdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, all of the Gospels, all four of them, include this entry into Jerusalem. There is a purpose for its conclusion and focus in the Gospels. Jesus' ministry of healing is finished. His healing ministry of healing and teaching. His miracles cease other than two more that he's going to do. And his public teaching has been completed with a few more private instructions and encouragements for his disciples still to come. He is going to Jerusalem to die as the last sacrificial lamb. We have to remember that. He is coming to die. This, this journey ends with his death. Because, of course, we know it's also his resurrection, but he knows what awaits him as he enters into that city. He is the final substitute that will finally cover all sins, past, present, and future, to bring into rightness that which was wrong. So there's three observations I want to make. Number one, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem to face his destiny. He has spent the majority of his public ministry far from Jerusalem. He mostly ministered in Galilee in northern Israel and the surrounding areas. And now he finally makes his way to Jerusalem. This comes after raising Lazarus from the dead. It is Passover week when the Jews celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And you and I know that story. 
This is a week, this is the week of his crucifixion. And after 30 years of mostly silence and then three years of public ministry, Jesus prepares to accomplish God the Father's plan as Jesus becomes obedient to the death that awaits him. Now, Jesus has foretold his death three times to his disciples that we've looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Peter declares that when Jesus is Christ, Jesus foretells it. After the transfiguring of, transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain where he displays his glory with Moses and Elijah, he then told them once again. And then thirdly, on the way to Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to die. Jerusalem is the center of religious life and messianic expectations. It is the city of the great king. It was the, it's called the, known as the city of David. King David had conquered the Jebusites that lived there, established his capital, and dedicated that city to God in Psalms 48. David sung, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem is a great city, and this is where he will finally meet his end. But first, Jesus accepts the crowd's exaltation as the king. Now, as we have mentioned several times in our study through Luke, the Jews have been looking for the promised Messiah the king, the anointed one of the Lord, the one who will deliver them from their enemies and restore Israel to his former glory. There had been many messiahs before Jesus who claimed to be that. There was many, had been many after Jesus proclaiming the same thing, but there is only one true messiah. This is messiah, the king, has been prophesied throughout scripture. It was prophesied in Genesis as Jacob blessed Judah when he says uh, that, 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 the tri- that, that the Messiah would come from Judah. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. It was prophesied to King David that he would come from his line in 2 Samuel when he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. Jesus was from the lineage of David, both from uh, Mary and from Joseph. But it was also prophesied by the Gabriel angel, or from the angel Gabriel to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as you might recall from our study in Luke chapter one, when it says that he will be great and that he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Jesus was then born nine months later. Never before had Jesus allowed such a public demonstration. As we had read previously, he would forbid anyone to declare his true identity, whether they were demons or disciples. No one was to proclaim him uh, uh, as, as, as the Christ. However, the time has come. This is different. He was not pushed or coerced into riding in Jerusalem and being celebrated as the king as in times past when they would wanted to make him king. He willingly offered himself at this time. The action of the crowd seems to be spontaneous, not something that's orchestrated by Jesus' disciples or other followers. As the disciples, as they were following him, all of them, these, these hundreds, probably thousands of people, are just seeing him and they're wanting to praise him and receive him as king. 
The crowd probably consisted of a large group of Galileans who had witnessed his great miracles, who had heard of his amazing, amazing teaching, and experienced his ministry firsthand. They are already favorable to Jesus, and they're accepting of his authority. The crowd cites Psalms 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Which became an exclamation of praise used during the Passover. This is something they would sing in, in anticipation of the Messiah. But here now, here is the Messiah entering in and they're singing this psalm. Jesus, by accepting the adulation of the crowd, demonstrates that he is the son of David, the king. He is now openly accepting this role. He also presents himself as the sovereign king who demands obedience. The king owned all that was in their kingdom and could requisition anything and anybody for their purposes. The prophet Samuel had warned Israel that if they chose the king, that that king will take their male servants and female servants and the best of their young man and take their donkeys and put them to work. In this case, Jesus demands the use of a young animal that had never been ridden or worked. Luke, in including this part of the drama, reveals Jesus' omniscience. Jesus, as the Son of God, knows the place. He knows the animal, the owner, the conversation, and the acceptance of his request. Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority as a king to demand obedience and accept that worship. Thomas Schreiner wrote, noting on the monitor, that we're not told if Jesus had made a prior arrangement or if he knows this by the virtue of his divine nature, though it would seem more so of his divine nature. The colt had never been ridden by anyone, and Jesus asked his disciples to untie the colt and bring it to him. The fact that no one else had sat on that donkey shows that it's fit to be a king. A king would never ride on something that was used. Number three, Jesus comes to bring peace, not war. Not only decepts the crowd's exaltation as a king, but he's coming in to bring peace, not war at this time. He's coming as a meek king, not a warrior king. Donkeys were usually ridden by rulers in times of peace. It was not a war horse, but a time of peace. Take your Bibles, if you wouldn't, turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the last books in the New Testament. If you go to Matthew, in the Old Testament, excuse me, go to Matthew and just backwards, Malachi, you'll find yourself in Zechariah. And this is important. Because this is where we see the fulfillment of what's happening in Zechariah chapter 9. Look at Zechariah chapter 9. Are you there? I'd love to hear those pages turn. Thank you. Look at verse 9. This is Zechariah hundreds of years before Christ. He writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Here's that promise once again. But look at what it says. He's humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. Here we see this finally coming to end. But then he goes on and says, I will cut off the sheriff from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rules shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. His time of conquering is not yet, but as we see, his time is coming as a humble king of peace 
is, is, is now arrived. Now, these original words written in Zechariah 9, 9 through 10 were about God's judgment on Israel's enemies and bringing peace. This is how the Israelites would have read and understood this passage of Scripture. The people were looking for military salvation from the Roman Empire. They, they settled more in verse 10 than they did on verse 9. They had suffered through Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Roman captivity. Once again, beholding a doctor, uh, Thomas Schreiner, he goes on to note, as you look on the monitor, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse to judge, but on a donkey, indicating that he is a gentle and humble king. He has come from the Mount of Olives as the king to rescue his people, but the city as a whole does not acclaim him as such. The ones who are pronouncing him as king are those disciples that have come from Galilee and have joined him along the road. Those that are there in the city will be the ones that will later say, crucify him, crucify him. However, Jesus did not come to make war with Rome. And I want you to get this part. Jesus did not come to make war with Rome, but peace with God. What they could not understand is that there was a greater enemy than Rome. Let me get this again. What the Jews did not understand is that there was a greater enemy that was confronting them than Rome. And if your guess would be that it was God. It was God. Look at this verse, these two verses here in Romans. This is what we need to understand. Is that the greatest enemy that you and I face is the wrath of God. He says, for if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what enemy they needed to be delivered from, the one in which God or Jesus needed to sue for peace, was the Father, the Trinity. That was their enemy. Now, as we continue through here, we need to understand as we look at these observations, what does this mean? What, what is Luke uh, trying to teach us? What is the Holy Spirit trying to get into our minds and hearts? In announcing the kingdom of the, or excuse me, the coming of the kingdom of God, the people were signifying, were signaling that they were ready for God to rule in righteousness, for Him to bring peace to their people to administer salvation from their enemies, to fulfill all of his promises that were found in the Torah from their prophets, from their fathers, and to fulfill Israel or restore Israel in God's glory among the Lamb. And the crowd believed that Jesus was Messiah, the King, the Promised One, the Anointed One of the Lord, to make all this happen. However, this was just an earthly coronation. Man's attempt to usher in their dreams and aspirations will always fail. In just a few days, Jesus will be betrayed, deserted, tortured, rejected, and crucified, all according to God's plan. They failed in making Jesus the king of Jerusalem at that moment. Peter in his sermon found in Acts 4 that in this city were all the makings, all the things necessary for God's plan of redemption to happen as God has planned. Jesus was born to die. God's plan cannot be thwarted. And though they rightly received him as king, what they did not understand that first he must die. 
And though the earthly coronation was temporary and premature, we see also that there was a heavenly coronation. The Apostle Paul tells the Church of Philippi, looking here in the monitor, that Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there was a heavenly coronation. Scripture goes on to tell us that because he rules from heaven, Jesus, that we can find joy in our suffering by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, we must not make the mistake, because as we go into the Easter, as we think of Maudie Thursday and Good Friday, that Jesus failed in his mission but we recognize that by going into Jerusalem ready to die, being obedient to death, is in which he was successful in fulfilling that which God had set forth. Turn to Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible, New Testament. Not only is there an earthly coronation that failed at this moment, but there was also a heavenly coronation. But what you and I are doing, and as we take the communion a little bit later, we talk about this, is we're looking forward to a future coronation. When Jesus comes back, not as the king of peace, but of justice and righteousness. You're with me in Revelation chapter 19, I believe. Look at verse 11. John is in heaven, and, he, and, he, and he, he's getting this vision. He says, then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one setting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are, are many diadems and he has a name written that no one, himself, no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on a white horse. From his mouth came a sharp sword which with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his right, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There is a future coronation coming where we will once again pronounce him as king. Now, I want to give you three facts about Jesus' reign. First one is Jesus will reign forever. In Isaiah, it says that he is speaking of him as we born. The government shall be upon his shoulder. We know this from Christmas. His name shall be well called, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It says of the increase in of his government and the peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus' reign as king will be forever. There will be no end. Number two, we see that Jesus will reign in wisdom and in righteousness. 
Jeremiah says, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as a king and deal wisely and will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Is this not what you and I desire for our country today? We desire one who can reign, rule in wisdom and righteousness to make right that went to it wrong. But then thirdly, for those taking notes, Jesus will reign over all the peoples and the nation. It will not just be in a little bit of strip in the Middle East. It's not just Israel, not just Jerusalem. But his reign will be over all of his creation. It says his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. All of his creation, visible and invisible. Jesus reigns Overall, there is nothing that the Father does not give him. But until that day, that day is in the future, that is what we are looking for, that's what we're praying, that is that glorious hope, that confident expectation that, that, that God will fulfill his promises that you and I have. Until that day, when Jesus comes to reign on earth, he's come to rule and reign in our hearts and lives first. Luke says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see, the kingdom of God, where God, where Jesus rules, is growing bit by bit as each new heart repents and submits to his kingship. And so that's our desire for you and I today that you and I in our hearts are also claiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus did not come to judge the earth on his first advent, but to save. John tells us, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. You see, Christ has come as king to rule and reign in our hearts, to bring us that peace. And there's two responses as we look at this passage. There's two responses to Jesus coming as king. Number one is the response of the disciples and the owner of the cult in obedience. Go and do. Come and see. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. So you and I can come and submit to him in obedience, kneeling so it were, and say, yes, he is king. Or we can have the response or I'm sorry, the response of the crowd uh, is reverence and worship. So there's actually three here as I'm looking at it, is the reverence and worship, or we can have that of the criticizers and the complainers, those who reject. So he wants us to have obedience. He wants us to come in reverence and worship. But there's the warning for those that reject him. So here's the question as we get ready to close. What is your response to Jesus entering Jerusalem that day? Our response is surrender to Christ and allow Christ to reign in our hearts. To let nothing else on that throne. Our response to the King of Kings is also to obey him and obey his word. You and I are to embrace his kingdom and the peace he freely offers. That reconciliation between God the Father and ourselves. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
I pray that there is all here who hear me and watch me later, that you've come to profess that Jesus Christ is King. And it's shown by our reverence, by our worship, by our obedience to his word. The Bible says that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And he says, be thankful. I think there's a great thing we th- as we think of that verse. You can tell someone who's a genuine Christian by their thankfulness, even in, in circumstances and consequences that are dire, that are enduring suffering, is being thankful, having a grateful heart, knowing that despite what's going on in this world, Jesus Christ is king. You know, as we just look on Twitter, look on Facebook, going walking down Huntington Beach, you can just see all sorts of things just going on. Here's a rally for this person. There's a rally for that person. There's a rally for this cause. There's a rally for another cause. And, and, and God forbid, when those two get close to each other, you just see the turmoil, the tension, the anger, the frustration. And we wonder, who is there that can come and reconcile this nation, this country, these our people, maybe even families together? There are families that are struggling, even in our church. And how can we find reconciliation? How can we have peace? It only comes when we submit to Christ as king in our hearts. For there will be a day when the skies will split and he'll be riding not on a, on a, on a donkey humbly, but he'll be coming on a white war horse, faithful and true, ready to slay all of his enemies. I pray that you would declare him as king today before that great and glorious day. See, Christ offices those promises, Savior, prophet, priest, and king. They render him glorious in the believer's eyes. We're to see him and and to, to lay the palms down in our cloaks, so to speak, as they did so many years ago. It should be dear to our believer's heart. He is in office for us, for our salvation, for our peace, and our satisfaction. James Smith, in his book, The Glories of Christ, I put it up here on the monitor for you, he says, He is king who receives the returning rebel and grants a pardon. He rules over his people by his love and his laws and defends all who trust him from danger and death. He rules over mankind and in the believer, and he is king of kings and lord of lords. And as a king, he saves from dangers and foes. Would you come, submit, in obedience, reverence, and worship to the King of Kings who's come to bring peace so that we may glorify God and for the good of our nation, our lives, our relationships, and all parts of our lives. So would you consider the implications of Christ in coming as King? I'm going to ask you to read this verse with me. It's 1 Timothy 1.17. You don't have to stand this time. But would you read this out loud with me? Ready? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's do that once again. Ready? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Do you believe that?
Is that in your heart? Are you ready to share that with others? Hey, the king has come. It's ready. The kingdom can be yours now in your heart as each heart submits. It's advancing. So would you today embrace the rule of King Jesus? Would you repent of dead works, turn and trust that God has accepted the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf? Would you submit to his kingship, to his rule in your life? Would you do so this morning? With every head bowed and every head closed, I'm going to ask Randy to go ahead and come on up. As we just prepare our hearts for communion, we want to take a moment to pause and consider this familiar story, one that we celebrate every year, Palm Sunday. And we just take a moment and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to respond? Are there any ways in which I have not submitted to you? Are there any areas of my life that I have not given over to your reign? Is there any way in which I'm not obeying? I'm not showing worship. I'm not showing reverence. Lord, help me in that way. Or maybe it's for the first time I need to profess you as king. And your prayer is, Lord, change my heart. If there's any here that desire to know truly whether or not you truly are born again, a child of God, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, please let Randy and I know we'd love to share with you and give you the confidence that you need to know your eternal state. For one day he is coming to judge the living and the dead. Randy, would you come and close us and prepare our hearts for communion? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.